Hi, Eric. Hi, how's it going? I'm excited. We're trying something new with our recording. We don't know if it's going to work. Let That's us, true. Let us know if the audio quality is terrible. We're hoping it will be better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll see. It's good to see you. We're across the room now. We're in. Well, we were last time we recorded too, I believe, or maybe the time before the time before. Well, we've. It's good we've to done see it you regardless. Once in <laughs> since the world ended, That's but right. only once. <laughs> now twice. Um, and sorry for the hiatus. Um, I'm uh, just. I've been at the beam t- beam line like nonstop for the last month. It seems like. And I've had some chaos myself. Yeah, yeah. but anyway, um, I wanted to kind of start the show with a bit more of an outline i feel like sometimes we've done these episodes and we wandered off and you know it's it's, <laughs> it's kind of been a bit of a, a bit of a ride but um i thought maybe if we kind of introduced our topic a bit more clearly up front it would be better so i wanted to talk about the word critic and the word critical um and use that as kind of a hanger for the for the show okay um, what are some meanings to you of the word critic and critical? Well, I think for a lot of us, they have negative connotations, but, uh, and I think this is where you're headed, but I really don't like that. Um, well, I don't think that was a very good definition. No, it wasn't a definition at all. That I'm, was me being critical. Yeah, that's good. Uh, <laughs> no, and I needed it because I wasn't being, I wasn't being clear. Uh, one thing in American letters that was really great about a hundred years ago is America's best writers were also critics and they were writing insightful criticism of their fellow great writers. And we had a boon in American letters at the time. And now everybody's afraid to do that. And there are critics and there are writers, but never the twain shall met, meet because they're considered, you know, you, if you're a writer, you have to be nice to other writers. And um, this idea that providing criticism of other writers, and sure, sure, you can, criticism can be an absolute takedown. But generally speaking, the purpose of criticism in literature is to describe what is happening and discover what it means and show the path forward so that we as a culture get better and better in terms of our literature. I, I've always been nervous about the word critical because uh, when it comes to religious settings, right? Because it of this negative connotation that it always has. Yeah, there's this idea that if you're being critical or something or you're criticizing it or you're being a critic that you are tearing it down or looking for the worst or or finding negative where maybe it need not be found. And that is... I feel a pretty shallow reading of what a good critic does. And um, it feels more of a deflection rather than a willingness to listen to someone whose entire purpose is growth. That's right. Um, I think it also, uh, if you, if you use the, if you are critical, if you miss, if you misplace the word critical in a religious setting, I think people can be, I mean, they don't want their faith torn down, right? Yeah. Like people, like religion really does have this, this faith element that does not, (laughs) how can I say this? It doesn't withstand criticism very well. (laughs) That's an interesting point. And I, I think it just makes people nervous. It does. And I don't know if, and that's always been true, but I don't necessarily feel that that's healthy 
But on the other hand, sometimes it's the only option. Okay, so that's why I want to have this the conversation because I want to reclaim the use of the word critical. Yeah. Um, in a religious um, conversation, right? Sounds good. Um, because um, the the use of the 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 use of the word critical is one of my favorite words um, from the uh, academic literature environment, right? From the scholarly scientific method reading yeah. um, environment uh, to the point where some of the very first lessons I had in grad school were about how to read critically. Right. And a big buzzword in education right now is teaching kids to think critically. Yeah. Right. But how could we do that if it's so negative? And the reason is because it doesn't need to have this negative connotation. Yeah, sure. I, I agree. And it's also a weird thing to say, like, well, like, what is the difference between thinking critically and just actually thinking? And the same thing with reading, right? Like you can read and have words, but if there's, I guess maybe reading is a little different because I guess you can read without thinking, but what's the point? Um, if you're just accepting everything you read and not looking for the strengths and weaknesses of it, then, you know, that's no good. Okay. We're going to source four different articles today. Okay. Okay. I'm excited. The first article is from the journal. Um, okay. So the first source is going to be an Elsevier article, which is one of these kind of online journal things. It's called Elsevier Connect, and it's an info infographic on how to read a scientific paper. Okay. Yes. So four sources, we're just going to start with this one and unveil them as we go. Okay. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. How do you read a scientific paper? Okay. So the reason I really like this particular article is, um, well, it's got a nice infographic on it. So what are the four steps to um, reading a scientific paper? So skim, then reread. That's interesting. How can you reread if you've only skimmed so far? Mm -hmm. Interpret, summarize. Okay, right. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that it's, 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 it's a process and it's a kind of a bouncy one, right? So whenever I read a scientific paper, I do skim it first, right? Sure. Quick, quick scan through the abstract. Yeah. What if it's and, not relevant to you? Man, that's a waste of an <laughs> that's hour. That's a waste of time. Right. And then I go right to the figures. Okay. Right? Yeah. If the fit, cause the figures are where the data are in a scientific paper and yes. uh, I take a look at some of those captions. Right. And then bounce down to the discussion to see what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if it's an important paper, only then. Well, I go all the way back up to the introduction and start reading it, or in this case, rereading it, right? Sure. And starting to ask some questions like what problem, I'm just reading here from the thing, what problem are they trying to solve? Are the findings supported by the evidence, right? So in other words, especially in scientific paper land, they're going to be trying to make some conclusions. They're going to be presenting sure. some evidence to support those conclusions, right? And is the evidence convincing? Do I believe anything that they're saying? I've definitely <laughs> read papers where that was not the case. I did not believe what they were saying. And there's, I've seen papers that um, have been retracted. And I even have a corrigidum on one of my papers. What is a corrigidum? It is a correction. Why do you call it a corrigidum? Because we're fancy. <laughs> <laughs> what is that word? What is the etymology? What does that mean? How do you spell it? Uh, C-O-R-R, -R, mumble, mumble. <laughs> 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 but, 
but anyway, we had a paper and, you know, we had a, a, a fact in it that we thought was a fact and we had somebody contest it and we agreed with what they were saying. Yeah. And we correct, we said, and we published, it's actually a published that you can cite a little correction to our paper. And it says, okay, we had said this, but it was closer to this. And, um, and that's, it's only a few paragraphs long, right? But it's an academic thing and you can find it. Do you put it on your CV? It's not on my CV. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's linked to from the article. I oh, okay. Need to. But that's I want to draw undue attention <laughs> to your corrigidum. <laughs> so anyway, so you study the paper, then you interpret it, as you say. This is what I was what I was just saying, right? You examine the graphs and the tables carefully. You try to interpret the data before looking at captions. Yes. That's a good thing to do, right? You look at the figures first to really see if you understand what they're saying just from the figures, looking at the data carefully, right? Is it a mouse brain cross-section? Can you see the thing, the cells they've lit up, they've lit up with a fluorescent dye before they tell you where to look, right? That would be more convincing and so forth. Um, as an aside, uh, when I went to grad, when I was applying for grad schools, I sat down with a professor that I didn't know very well, didn't know what their research was, but they were very excited to talk to me. And I was excited to talk to them. And she very first thing she or he or she said was, um, Okay, in my lab, I do the mouse brain dissections. Oh, <laughs> nice. And I was like, okay, done. <laughs> I don't think I ever spoke to that person again. <laughs> You're not into mouse brain dissection? I'm not. No, no, no. <laughs> nope. No, no, no. I love crystals. Okay, so, and then summarize, which means like taking notes and stuff. But what I'm trying to get at, and there's a phrase that they use elsewhere in this article where they use the word critical. Reading a scientific paper should not be done in a linear way from beginning to end. Instead, it should be done strategically and with a critical mindset, questioning your understanding and, your and the findings. Sometimes you will have to go backwards and forwards, take notes, and have multiple tabs open in your browser. This is what critical means to me. It does not mean you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it does not mean I don't believe you, right? What it means is trying to really understand what's being said to see if the evidence supports what they're saying, and then to see if I can build on it in the future myself, right? That's what being critical means to me. Would you consider a synonym to a critical mindset an engaged mind? I wouldn't. No. What's the difference? No, I think it's a great question. Um, an engaged mind is someone that's interested for sure, mm -hmm. but a critical mind is probing, right? Okay. It's, it's not just interested in following along and enjoying itself and believing everything it's reading, right? Right. It is. It's in preemptive conversation. Yeah. Yeah. What did you mean by that? What you just said? Can I ask different questions? Can I try to understand? Is there a different way to interpret what I'm saying? Why are you trying to promote what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> That's what being, being critical is. Yeah. How different is this from what they teach you in English land? <laughs> Well, let me talk about something adjacent to English land. 
Um, let's talk about movie critics for a second. Oh, this is interesting. I'm going to use two, arguably, definitely in the top five. Many people would say these are the two greatest American film critics of the 20th century, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael. Um, Roger Ebert, early in his career, won a Pulitzer Prize, changed a lot of what people thought criticism should be, um, went on to have a very, he's probably the most famous critic, I would say, in America today, even though he's been dead for almost a decade, uh, Roger Ebert. And early in his career, he decided he would take his skills of analyzing film and use them to make a movie. And he wrote Return of the Valley of the Dolls, Return to the Valley of the Dolls, something like that. Um, generally agreed to be a disaster. Uh-huh. Was it, well, he wrote it, but was it actually made? Uh, it was actually made. Yes. And you can, it's in the public domain, so you can find it. Hmm. Um, I have not watched the entirety of it, but it is largely composed of at least, at least the first 10 minutes, which I have seen, it's mostly composed of, uh, uh, predominantly nearly nude women dancing around in 60s weirdness. Oh, fantastic. That's mostly what it's about, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Uh, Pauline Kael, similarly, after decades as America's preeminent critic, uh, she was recruited by Hollywood and she went, and I, I want to say she worked uh, in a script development department to help them choose which films would be made. And it didn't really go great, right? Like she was, she'd been the arguably the most insightful critic in America for decades. But when it came time to make movies, it ends up that's not really the same skill set. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't super successful on that end. And so to come back to your question, I think what's interesting is that I really think it is ideal when critics and creators are the same people. And in science, that's kind of the only way it, I, I can't imagine a world very easily in which critics just talk about scientific papers, but aren't scientists themselves. It happens. They're called editors. I suppose that's true. Yeah. They, they work on that and on the publication side or on um, grant boards, grant boards. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want you to um, <laughs> submarine yourself here, <laughs> but do you feel that people sitting on grant boards who are not scientists are doing a good job uh, criticizing potential scientific research? I love this question, okay? Because I think it's so hard to review grants because there's no, I, I am such a specialist, right? I am a protein crystallographer who uses an X-ray free electron laser, right? On supercomputers to analyze data, right? Sure. I think there's like, there's like three to five of us that are writing the software, right? Mm -hmm. And then there are maybe 20 of us that are also contributing, but that are new to the field or have recently left the field. It's not a big group. <laughs> so if I go to read someone else's grant, my general understanding of crystallography would mean that I would be directed towards more kinds of crystallography, right? But I don't know anything about, like some, say somebody wrote a paper on, you know, a cancer protein and they got the structure from a crystal and they sent that me that paper, right? Or that grant to do the research. And they've got a whole bunch of, of mouse cancer work in there along with their crystal structure work. And I, I'm not going to be able to review that stuff, but I have to. 
And so there's a general critical mindset. You can, you, and that you can kind of tell a lot of times when science is bad, <laughs> if you've been around it long enough, but sometimes you just do the best you can. You, and that's why you have editing boards and grant boards so that you can try to farm out when you try to get a variety of, of expertise and farm the grants out and the papers out to, uh, to people who are at least close, but it's not, it's not ideal. Uh, it's not as bad as you might think though. Like, I think your question could have, like, I think maybe a cynical person would have said, this is totally bogus and there's, it's nowhere even close to right, but I don't think it is. I think the, I think the scientific community tries really, really hard to get this right. Cause it's a lot of money to move sure. around. And I think this is a problem every field has, which is why universities insist on two years of general ed. So you have a general understanding of the shape of human knowledge. Because even if you're going into crystallography, the skills you gain in your humanities class help you give you um, help develop the, this critical capacity yeah. to understand things outside of your own experience. Yeah, Th that's in in the arts. So, like, say you you are in a design program, for instance. This is sort of the stereotypical difference between taking graphic design at a university versus a community college. And I'm, I'm not saying this is absolutely true, but this is, this is the stereotyped stereotype difference between the two kinds of educations at a university, because you get a, um, the broader general eds and because you spend more time with theory, your you also develop skills. You learn whatever, you know, this, the tools are at that moment, you know, whatever version of, you know, Quark or InDesign or whatever it is that you use in graphic design, you learn that, but because you have this larger set of understanding about how design works, um, you remain capable of doing your job no matter what happens. Um, the stereotype of people who do a design program in a community college only is that they learn how to use whatever tools are at the moment, but they don't really have a broader understanding of design. And so they kind of have to have someone telling them what to do. And then once the tools change, they have to be retrained because that's all they have is their tools. They don't have the larger um, mental framework. Uh, I suspect that's probably a pretty unfair stereotype. Yeah. But but disregarding the community college versus university thing, I think that difference is really important. If you understand how your field fits with other fields and with the larger sense of human um, endeavor, then you're more capable of approaching critically whatever is your specialty or whatever is adjacent to your specialty or even things you don't really understand quite as well. Um, and that needs to, that critical capacity needs to be accompanied by a certain amount of humility and a willingness to ask questions and a willingness to be wrong, but it should build the ability to look at things critically and make intelligent observations and be able to move forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's definitely specialists and generalists um, throughout the field that I've been in. And I feel like the longer your career goes on, the more general you become. Like you can start off oh, really, really, really special. Going through your doctorate. Going through your PhD, your doctorate, your postdoctorate. Um, and then you now you have to start writing grants, right? You start having to hire people to do a variety of different tasks. Reading the scriptures is different than reading a scientific paper. There are fewer abstracts. But some of the skills transfer. Absolutely. Okay. 
a critical reading of the scriptures is more like more like gospel study, right? Whereas a daily reading of the scriptures to get some inspiration before you go around your day, right? I mean, I just feel like those kinds of reading is different. Like I, when I read the scriptures on my own, like, you know, at home before I start my day, right? I'm not looking to understand Isaiah. You know, I'm not looking to get, have a deep history of the culture of the, you know, Nephites as seen by scholars <laughs> from some university somewhere, right? Um, and, and oftentimes I'm not too happy about the war chapters and I just want to skip to the to third Nephi and read about Christ among the Nephites, right? And have have a nice a nice thing to kind of start my day. I feel yeah. like that kind of reading the scriptures. And then there's the kind of listening to a prophet speak where you're intently looking for like spiritual answers to questions. Right? Yeah. I feel like that's different too. And then there's trying to understand gospel questions. So, and at this point, we start cribbing from our new elders quorum teacher. <laughs> yes. Who is locally getting his postdoc in chemical engineering. And that might be enough for you to figure out who he is. So we will stop describing him there. <laughs> he gave an <laughs> excellent Casey lesson. And like Casey likes his privacy. <laughs> he, he taught an excellent lesson uh, last Sunday uh, in, in elders quorum. And um, it included an article that I'd never seen before, which, which is in the show notes. And it's called Answering Gospel Questions. It's in the manual, the gospel topic section of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the way he taught it, he had everybody kind of look at one of the subheadings in the article, right? That sounds just like what we were talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> skimming. That's the skim. That's the skim. <laughs> and then we, you know, we had us talk about them. And what I was really impressed by was the, how, the compare and the contrast of this article about how to read the scriptures and to, as it says here, seek learning by study and faith and compare that to the use of the word critical as it comes to reading scientific papers. I want to read some of these headings. Here's one that I think is really good, okay? So remain faithful to what you already know by the Spirit to be true, right? So as you, if you have a particular question and you think that question is kind of giving you a paradox you don't really understand, right? You need to think critically, but you've already had a testimony, right? You've, you've felt the spirit at church. You've understood. I mean, isn't there a doctor and covenants thing? There's a doctor and covenants thing like this. Cast your mind back. Do you know the scripture? I don't know which verse you're referring to. I'm afraid when he's just like someone is, uh, you know, Oh, doubting or, you know, trying to get an answer. And then the script, the doctor and covenants versus cast your mind back to the night where you were praying. Yeah. And don't you remember that I told you then there was, he was talking to Oliver Cowdery, I believe. Yeah. There it's you very go. early. It's, it might even be a single digit um, section. Um, I think that's cool. Yeah. We had a gospel doctrine teacher in the Berkeley ward years ago. Um, she is now faculty in Ann Arbor. So she left us, uh-huh. but her thing about studying the scriptures was she would talk about, she had this metaphor, the red thread. So, um, and I don't remember 
how the metaphor works exactly, but I guess in tapestry or something, there's like something they do where you can follow a thread. I don't, I don't remember. The point is throughout all the scriptures, even though there's crazy, terrible things that happen in the scriptures, if you keep your eyes open for the red thread and the red thread is like, um, God loves us. Like if you remember that that red thread is always there, it gives you a way to shape your understanding of everything else you read. If you hold on to that one fact, then there's a way to work your way through everything else. I mean, it goes right into the next section, which is examine questions with the eternal perspective of the plan of salvation, right? Uh, some of the questions that we have only make sense when you step away and you think about eternal life. Yeah. What, what does it mean to be a person on the earth temporarily? The, which isn't always satisfying, right? I, I want answers now. <laughs> yeah. Well, mortality is, is not great for satisfaction. <laughs> Mick Jagger taught us that. That's true. <laughs> the great reverend. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, well, I wanted to mention a couple other one of these. Consult reliable and authoritative sources and consider the motives of who prepared each source. This is excellent. This is scholarly thinking. I was so pleased to see this in this article hosted on the church website, right? It is exactly how you're supposed to read a scientific paper as well. The citations in the paper are so important. And reading a, when you try to study and you try to answer a, a gospel question, having reliable and authoritative sources and you consider the motives, that's really cool. I'm going to say yes, but to this one. Excellent. Because I am a little skeptical of being too confident that we know other people's motivation. Mm -hmm. um, and also, um, not to say that the devil can speak truth means you should listen to the devil or, or anything, but um, if we judge the source, meaning the person who's saying it too quickly, we may lose the opportunity to understand what's being said. I don't know that that's what, I, I mean, the, I'm looking at your uh, summarized version, so I don't have the, the um, whatever appears directly underneath this subheading, but I would throw up a word of caution there when we're considering the motives of other people. I, I feel like judge not that you be not judged might come into play here. Um, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there is a quote here that I have that is in the learn to detect partial truths and lack mm. of context section. Oh my gosh, that is the lesson all of America needs to learn. Mm -hmm. Partial truths and, and context. So, um, and here's a quote here from President Nelson, right? I'm reminded of a personal experience that you may find amusing. I was serving as a consultant to the United States government at its National Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. Once while waiting a taxi to take me to the airport after our meetings were over, I stretched out on the lawn to soak in a few welcome rays of sunshine before returning to the winter weather of Utah's January. Later, I received a photograph in the mail taken by a photographer with a telephoto lens, capturing my moment of relaxation on the lawn. <laughs> Under it was a caption, governmental consultant at the National Center. The picture was true, the caption was true, but the truth was used to promote a false impression. <laughs> yes, truth can even be used, to, be used to convey a lie. Yes, that is absolutely a factual thing. Uh, my, my AP Lang students last night read How to Tell a True War Story by Tim O'Brien, which is an excellent story, and I bet we can throw it in the show notes. Um, it was published on its own originally, but was later appeared as part of his uh, book, The Things They Carried, which is also 
truly excellent. But in How to Tell a True War Story, he talks about the difficulty of explaining to other people what war is like, even your fellow soldiers in war, like trying to tell a story that is true is difficult. And even a story that is completely factual may not be factual. And a story that's completely made up may be better at expressing truth. And um, truth is complicated. And, and the more difficult the story we're trying to tell, in his case, war, the more difficult it is to be truthful. And I think religion definitely fits in that category because we're talking about things that we are not capable of understanding at scales. We are not capable of fathoming. And so we are doing our best to tell the truth, but everything is cloaked in metaphors and guesses and faith. And it's true, but it's not true in the way that the expiration date on the milk is May 5th is true. It's a lot more complicated and and figuring out what is true is is complicated and it's a the pursuit of a lifetime and we'll never arrive. So you got to be critical. You got to be stop. critical. <laughs> got to keep working on it. Let's unveil our next two sources. Our next two sources are first Elder Renlund's talk from General Conference this year uh, in April 2022, and it is um, called um, "Your Divine Nature and Eternal Destiny." That's right. And I would say it was probably the second most controversial talk at conference. What was the first most? Um, oh, I would say Elder Oaks's talk. Yeah, I f- kind of figured you'd say that. Yeah, <laughs> which we're not talking about today, but we could have. We could have. Um, so this is what one so one article. So this yeah. particular the the controversial section um, is about uh, Heavenly Mother, right? Yes. And we kind of knew this talk was coming based there on there was a lot of rumor, a lot of rumor from Twitter. Um, and I think it could have been a lot worse, to be honest. Sure. Like I'm, if I, if you don't mind me saying it could have just, <laughs> if that's, if that's the way we want to grade things, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been something. Okay. Now be okay. Now I feel like there, if you're listening to us, I think you could have immediately like clenched up. Okay. When I said mm. that, okay. Maybe you're the kind of person who says you shouldn't talk about any, about the prophets in a way that could be considered critical. I'm trying to be like Jesus. Right. And he was always knocking the apostles around. So, <laughs> but what right do we? <laughs> we suddenly, how could we possibly have a right? What I'm going to do is I'm not going to be critical. No, well, we are being critical, but in the good way. In the good way, in the scientific yes. way. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? Because the way my brain works, I can't hear this talk and understand what's what's happening <laughs> and yeah. I'll, I'll explain what i mean in a minute right listen it's very important that i want to say this up front because i know like members of my family listen to this to this and i know and i don't want them to be worried right sure i love the prophets <laughs> <laughs> i love conference i love conference i love hearing about the gospel i love talking about the gospel i cannot read without being critical after my years of training okay sure. and thinking it's it's, it's a very uh, rabbinical tradition ooh yeah like that this is this is what um we admire about the jewish religious tradition right it's like thousands of years of criticism and criticism layered upon criticism they're great at this the fourth source we're not even going to talk about this talk yet we're going to kind of bounce back and forth mm-hmm. the fourth source is 
by is from the most recent spring 2022 edition of Dialogue. Yes. And we are a member. We are a proud member of the of the Dialogue podcast family. How Fam- about that? Family. I love it. I normally, I actually find it really irritating when people apply the word family in other places. But I'm going to say it today because, uh, hey, we're talking about Heavenly Mother. So family seems appropriate. It does seem ap- appropriate. Um, and they this last um, issue was entirely about Heavenly Mother. So it's a special issue. Uh, Heavenly Mother in critical context. It's free. The whole issue is free on the internet. Uh, we're going to put a link to it in our show notes. And it's worth pointing out that this is not a reaction to conference. This issue was in the works for years. Okay. Almost almost makes you, it just occurred to me, maybe conference was a reaction to knowing this issue was coming out. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time the dialogue got subtweeted in general conference. There's a long tradition of dialogue getting subtweeted by general authorities. So... <laughs> The second talk is the one we're going to focus on today, In Defense of Heavenly Mother, Her Critical Importance for Mormon Culture and Theology by Margaret Toscano. Yes. Um, this is another definition of critical, which means important. Critical importance. It's the important importance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's focus first on um, Elder Runland's words. So when you handed this to me, um, you pointed me in the direction of footnote 10. That's right. So mostly what I'm thinking about is footnote 10. That's pretty much the only thing I'm thinking about as well. Okay. Because it's what, it's what got me as mm-hmm. it were when I was reading this, right? Because yes. um, I was, because, um, you know, when I was, when I was getting ready to read this talk, I knew what the, what they were going to say. They were going to say that we don't know who Heavenly Mother is. Yeah. We don't know very much about her and that you, sh- and that you shouldn't pray to her. Right. That's what they were going to say. I knew that's what they were going to say. That's what they said. Yeah. That wasn't surprising. When I was saying it could have been worse, what I'm meaning is they could have said, like, stop talking about her at all. (laughs) That's what people were afraid of. I I think think that's what people were afraid of. Yeah. Right. But that's not what happened. And this footnote, I think, is a good example of a sunbathing Russell Nelson Mm -hmm. in that I actually agree with everything the footnote says, and yet I don't agree with the footnote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shall, I, shall I start? Go ahead. I, actually, can I just, I'm just going to read the footnote. Um, and it also includes a link to Jacob 414 and, uh, and a couple of scriptures from Second Nephi. But I am going to skip those for now. We may come to the scriptures later. I'm just going to read um, what I assume was written by Elder Renland, the, the footnote itself, the footnote proper, um, which does quote from the three verses that are included at length later in the footnote. Did that make sense? It did. Even sincere questions, he writes, about partially revealed or unrevealed truths can lead us to look beyond the mark. That's from Jacob. In particular, we need to rely wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save Jesus Christ. That's one of the second Nephi quotations. Suggesting the need for something more than what Jesus Christ offers effectively diminishes the scope and power of his infinite atonement. In so doing, we divert our attention from the ultimate source to which we should look for a, for a remission of our sins. That last bit is also from Second Nephi. So um, I'm going to do a slightly summarized version, if I may. Um, no matter how sincere you are, um, if you're thinking about things which are only partially or fully unrevealed, that can lead you to look beyond the mark. And instead of looking at Jesus, we should only give our attention to Jesus, because he is the source of remission from sins. I can't. I can't do this. 
also, I don't think that's what our religion asks us to do. Yeah. Listen, I, I love the scriptures that are in here, right? I love the phrase, be careful of looking beyond the mark, right? Yeah. Because I think it's, I think that's, that's legit. I think it's important to um, understand the limitations of what's been revealed, right? Where the edge is. I think that's, that's important to know. Hey, Aaron. Yeah. Do you believe in an ongoing restoration? I, I, I sure do. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, go on. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I also love, of course, um, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save, right? I yes. spend a lot of time thinking about, about going to church, you know, and taking the sacrament, right? These right. are things that I love, right? And the third scripture. I try to to ha- put my attention on um, the the source of my remission of my of my sins. We talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins, saith Nephi. Right. My criticism, in a good way, yes, <laughs> is that one reading of this footnote is I shouldn't question at all, ever. Yeah. I should stick only to what's been revealed. And you should only think about Jesus. Yeah. Stop thinking about, I don't know, church history or genealogy. That may be a bit extreme as to what he's saying. Barely. Uh Remember, let's remember the context. The context is Heavenly Mother. He's specifically talking here. He is specifically talking about Heavenly Mother in the article. Yeah. But that is not what the footnote says. Mm Mm-hmm. The footnote is generalizing what he said about Heavenly Mother. I don't want to overinterpret what he's saying. I don't think I am. Okay. Like, <laughs> I really don't. Um, he says, uh, very little has been revealed about Heavenly Mother. Uh, this is the, the paragraph before the footnote. And what we do know is summarized. You can read that and then you will know everything. Um, he does say, I wish I knew more. You two still may want to know more, but be cautious speculation. And again, he's specifically talking about Heavenly Mother here. Will not lead to greater spiritual knowledge. That can lead us to deception or divert our focus from what has been revealed. And then the footnote. Um, I think the reason it's a footnote is because it is generalizing what is specific in the article. Because it doesn't really say anything different. It it lets him cram in three more scriptures, but I don't think it's really saying anything different. I think the only reason for a footnote is to generalize this concept more broadly about partially revealed and unrevealed truths. Don't bother with them. But I find that troubling because to me, one of the things that we believe as Latter-day Saints is in an ongoing restoration and we believe in personal revelation. And I'm not saying that, um, well, think about Alma. He was talking to his son. He's like, you know, I'm not really sure how this whole life after death thing works. And then the next day he says, hey, I prayed about it and I got an answer. And here's some more about how life after death works. Um, That's nice. And it's obviously tightly related to, you know, redemption from our sins. But is it necessary to know that, uh, you know, if all we have to do is look at Jesus and uh, sure, Alma's the prophet, but isn't the lesson here that we should always believe that there is more truth and knowledge yet to be revealed? I mean, that's in the articles of faith. Again, I agree with everything he says in the footnote, but I don't like how these numbers add up. It reminds me of um, Lou Costello adding... 13, seven times and coming up with 28, which we will include a link to in the footnotes. So you can watch it at your own pleasure. <laughs> okay. 
And now I want to switch. So we're going to just hold this, this footnote in your head. Okay. As we go and we nice read. And short, I can do that. And as, as we go and read from dialogue. So the article is excellent. So one of the central points it's trying to make is that there are different ways to understand Heavenly Mother. Okay. And it, it kind of, just reading this, it already kind of opened my eyes a bit in ways that I didn't understand. Okay. So one reading of Heavenly Mother is that she's a woman. <laughs> sure. Okay. And that Heavenly Father is a man. Right. That and is this a is a common interpretation. This is a distinctly LDS. Well, I mean, not distinctly LDS, but it's, but this the way our church looks at it is that these are, this is a physical, there's a physicality there. Right. Yes. That they are real people of people, of personages of flesh and bone. Right. And that they have aspects of male and female and they are, they're different. Right. And that there's gender there. Yes. Okay. One criticism of that physicality is that it looks like it eliminates any kind of spectrum of gender. It could, yeah. Um, Blair Osler's new book, uh, Queer Mormon Theology, talks about this a lot. Um, just as an aside, there is an essay about, um, we were saying- Oh yeah, so Blair Osler in um, Queer Mormon Theology takes that opening of, of how little we know about Heavenly Mother to um, create space for queerness within our faith. Um, I have not gotten super deep into that book, so I don't want to over claim what Blair claims. But So in this article, the author is, um, what she's doing is she's saying that what that's one, one way to solve the problem of binaryness. Yeah. When we observe people who are non-binary is to remove some of these aspects of gender from heaven, from heavenly father and heavenly mother, right. And make them more abstract. And then what she argues is that this becomes a kind of transcendental God transcendental. Is that the right way to say that? Uh, That is a word. Okay. A, A kind of abstract God, right. And it becomes the, well, I mean, the, the unknowable, genderless, formless God that is you can't understand. And that if you start removing the physicality, right, of God and of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, that it's easy to suddenly veer over here into this other world. And that it's hard. We don't know what the right answer is, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm all I'm trying to do is give some. All I'm trying to do here is give some context for this quote. Oh yes, you you were going to give us a quotation from uh, Toscano's essay. Okay. So I'm just going to quote. This is from. If you want to follow along, this is from page forty. Okay. Third or the bottom paragraph. Though an idealistic theology posits a god beyond male and female, may seek to avoid the complex problems of gender and sexuality. A practical and effective theology will confront and deal with the complexities of physicality and not sidestep them in the hope that some vague notion of a hereafter will eventually release us from the problems that burden us in the here and now. Mormon theologians must wrestle with the reality of physicalism while actively promoting equality 
spirituality, and diversity. For this reason, Mormonism should not abandon or marginalize the embodied Heavenly Mother as the co-equal counterpart of the embodied Heavenly Father. To do so at this stage of Mormon history in the hope of promoting the laudable goal of gender equality and diversity would not only exchange the problems of Mormonism's concept of divine physicality for the old orthodox problems of divine immateriality, it would also intensify the deep psychological hunger for a divine female in LDS culture by erasing Heavenly Mother before she has been allowed to become fully visible. And this is what I'm trying to get at. Yes, Elder Runlin can tell us that this is all that's been revealed and that it's almost dangerous to probe around the edges, right? That's not what he said. That's that's me interpreting what he said. Sure. Right? But that... Again, I'm just going to say what say what he said. Even sincere questions about partially revealed and revealed truths can lead us to look behind the map. Mark, well, and and the sentence that that footnote is attached to warns that it can lead us to deception. Lead us to deception. But here's the problem. Yes, he may be absolutely right. There is a hunger for understanding more about Heavenly Mother. Read what she says in the paragraph after that one. Okay. While mostly absent in mainstream LDS worship and practice, Heavenly Mother is very much alive in the everyday lives of thousands of church members. Peggy Fletcher Stack's 2021 Mother's Day article in the Salt Lake Tribune reported, there is a tidal wave of interest in the divine feminine among Latter-day Saints, observers say. It has become almost a movement. Yes, and uh, can I take a moment to promote this footnote, which mentions uh, Rachel Hunt Steenblick's Mother's Milk, uh, a poetry collection published by, by Common Consent, and Carolyn Pearson's Finding Mother God collection, and also Dove Song, Heavenly Mother and Mormon Poetry, edited by Tyler Chadwick, Dana Patterson, and Martin Polito, published by Peculiar Pages, based right here in El Cerrito. Um, <laughs> I'm a proud publisher of that company, and it's a great book, and you should all go get Dove Song. Uh-huh. Um In that footnote, it says, let's see, it's footnote five. Oh, no, mine was seven. Yours was seven. Maybe you want to talk about five. I don't know. Footnote five there says that you can see um, Klein and Hunt Steenblick for a discussion of this need. This is what I'm trying to say. And I'm having a hard time explaining it, right? Because if I explain this wrong, people will think I'm criticizing Elder Renland, which I'm not. Okay. I'm not trying to cast doubt and aspersions on our prophetic leaders. I'm not. I really am. I'm not. Okay. (laughs) But I need to explain that there is a need in the LDS congregations for the divine feminine. Right? Right. I feel like we don't have enough. I feel like I'm not getting it from talks where I'm told this is all we know. So I'm going to go to the scholars and find it there. Yeah. Elder Renlund says, quote, I wish I knew more, unquote. So do I. That's really dissatisfying from an apostle, <laughs> right? Like that we've been taught that they are prophets, seers, and revelators. And if they're not prophesying, seeing, or revealing, like, I mean, maybe there is actually a good reason for us not to know more. Maybe there isn't, but um, I would love to know that 
the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency are knocking on God's door. I wish he had said, I wish I knew more and we have been asking. That would have changed the tenor of this talk enormously. Yeah. I think people would have been much more satisfied with it. Some people still would have like had their feathers ruffled and so forth. But I think a simple addition, like, I don't just wish, like we're asking, we wish we knew more, so we're going to ask. And uh, in the meantime, you know, even sincere questions about partially revealed or unrevealed truths can lead us to look beyond the mark, dot, dot, dot. I think everything else feels differently if we know that our prophets, seers, and revelators are working on the prophecy, the scene, and the revelation part of their job, which is not to say they're not, but they could tell us they are, and that would change people's perspective a lot, and I think we feel a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I... I that's what I wanted to say. That's kind of why I wanted to drive this whole conversation. I wanted to start with critical thinking, right? I wanted to talk about how to appropriately read scripture with a prayerful mind, how to try to combine these two things, and then to read this talk from conference and understand that, that it's not enough. That there's, I, my brain is not satisfied with, we don't know who my Heavenly Father heavenly mother is it's not no and i i really my understanding of what makes our what joseph smith saw made our faith different from other faiths is that we are not satisfied that we are hungry and we are in conversation with god and asking for more and um we've talked about that that line from the bible dictionary in uh under prayer before where uh one of the purposes of prayer is is uh there are some blessings just contingent upon our being willing to ask for them i i mean i mean we gotta be asking we're asking we gotta, yeah <laughs> we're ask. recording this we're gonna put it on the internet yeah and a good hundred people are gonna hear it <laughs> thanks guys one of whom may very well be for all we know one dell renland <laughs> um it seems like a nice guy. It seems great. I, I have, yeah. This is why I was so nervous to record this show because I just feel like it could go badly and that people could misinterpret what I'm trying to say. Well, I think it's impossible that people will not misinterpret what we say. Even if even if we are not um saying something that is obviously misinterpretable. <laughs> it's misinterpretation is still gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, this, I mean, at this point, it's a bunch of caveats, right? We're just a couple sure. of, of white male, just gendered dudes sitting in the in a podcast recording studio. What right do we have to talk about anything related to <laughs> feminism? But I have my only response to that is that man, it's like all I want to talk about. Sometimes I like it's just all I, it's just so important. Listen, dear listener, please read the rest of this article. Um, I didn't have an, it, this, this, this issue came out like yesterday. I've only had a chance to, read. I didn't even realize it was out when you sent me the link. Yeah. I've only had a chance to read, um, uh, portions of this article, but she goes through and she talks about evidences of divine feminism. There's a section called Mary, mother, God, tree of life and divine love in the book of Mormon. Right. And there's a lot of other good stuff in the article. And I mean, in the issue also, there's a lot of good poetry, for instance. And um, hold on before you hold that. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I want you to read, wanted to read the other things. There's a section called Lady Wisdom, Hakma and Sophia, which is about um, Jewish, Jewish and Christian texts, which I don't know anything about. Yeah, Sophia, um, the goddess wisdom, she shows up in the Old Testament. 
Yeah. And then there's the, a section called the Mother God, her place in the Godhead, right? Which is an interesting commentary on the Holy Ghost. And, the whole, and there's a section on the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit, right? So anyway, it goes on. And um, it's scholarship, right? It's thinking critically about religion, and it's trying to put together the pieces we have. And I think we want this. Um, we've also talked before on the show about how it hasn't always been great for the faith when someone like Brigham Young is speculating from the pulpit. Like it's good for the speculation to come from other places and for us to explore ideas. This is why dialogue was founded. It's why Eugene England, you know, created the idea of dialogue so we can talk about things. And it's not supposed to be an attack. It's not supposed to be an expression of doubt or animosity. It's exploration. It's, it's trying to understand what we already know and, and see it in new lights. And that's super valuable. It's critical thinking. That's exactly what it is. The word critical is neutral. That's what's important to understand. It is probing. It is thoughtful. It is, it's, I'm going to do like a, like charity is never faileth, right? <laughs> Being critical never faileth. <laughs> it takes you places, opens your eyes, makes you learn and is not satisfied. And it goes down paths that you wouldn't have expected. And, um, it checks sources. <laughs> it looks for motivations and it tries to synthesize. And it's neutral. That's the thing. Okay. Um, there's other stuff in this article, in this journal, in this issue. There's other stuff in this issue. There's other stuff. Is there? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> more stuff. Okay. You were gonna you were gonna say I was, I was just gonna mention the poetry, but there's a lot of uh, Blair Osler, we mentioned earlier, is represented in this issue. This issue has been coming down the pipe for a while and there a lot of work was put into it and i have not read very much of it but i'm excited to read more we're sponsored as you said by nobody but we nobody. are a member of the dialogue podcast member uh, uh, uh family please go and find their shows that's right i think i just think it's so mormon to be critical like i really do it's part of my testimony that God made us, gave us the capacity to think and to explore and to learn more than he told us. So let's, let's put those skills to use. Don't, don't bury your talent. Um, uh, we'd like to thank Daniel Foster Smith for our music. Um, uh, if you want to follow us, I am Aaron Brewster on Twitter and Erica is amazing yep, on Twitter and you can follow the show at face and hat. Oh, don't forget our discord. Oh, right. And we also have a Discord server. We had an influx of a few members of my uh, gaming group. Oh, that's who they were. Yeah. A bunch of people joined all. Yeah, the they're, they're good folks. So I'm excited to have them. So uh, come on in and talk about this episode and uh, give us topic ideas for more. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Eric. Bye. Bye. Same hat time, same hat channel. <laughs> you, know, you know I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs>